you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 again today. We'll, uh, I make no promises of finishing what I've got, and uh, let me just state that up front, so if I don't, we'll, we'll pick back up where we left off this time. But we're still, still looking at the qualifications of a man to, to be a pastor in a local church. Let me just go ahead and start with, with reading the word and praying, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and dive in. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll look at the first seven verses and pray. Paul writes to Timothy, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's just another word for pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage the household of his household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Pray with me. O oh God, we come this morning. We come sitting before you, and I pray that we would have a greater sense of that as we gather for worship, that we would recognize that, that what we're doing is not just a religious observance. We have come to worship and to hear from the living God. We know from our scriptures, O Christ, that you have promised to be specially present in the gathered church as you indicate in Matthew, but as you also indicate through your servant John in the first chapters of Revelation, where you're seen among the candlesticks which represent your local churches. And so we want to come with reverence this morning. God, I come recognizing, and, and as I'm growing in grace, becoming more aware that how important and heavy it is to stand in this pulpit because it, this is not about what Jared Gaynor has to say. If it is, then we're in, we're in bad shape. If I've come to preach myself, God, then I've come as a fool. But God, I have the weighty task and privilege and joy and delight of opening your word. But God, it lays so hidden so often to my mind and so hidden so often to the minds of your people that it takes special help of your spirit to help us understand it. So God, would you work in that way today? I don't want to speak my words, God. I want to speak yours. So help me as I open my mouth and use my voice that you would be heard and not me. And Lord, that it wouldn't be about me assuming some authority that's not mine to have. I simply want to be a messenger that, that says this is what God has said. And I want to be accurate and I want to be faithful. God, whatever I've done in this sermon today that, that is wrong or inaccurate, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would just sort of let that be forgotten, that it would not be... Uh, a sticking point for people and that you would let those things that are in this sermon, God, that are true and right and holy and good, biblically accurate, that you would highlight those, that that's what people would remember. 
And God, I'm reminded as I stand here today that I'm not here to wow people. I'm not here to do a great job. I'm here to feed your lambs. So God, give them what they need today. Through your word, teach us and prepare us to evaluate Jeffrey and Donnie with biblical faithfulness, doing that as unto you. And so we ask and invite your presence today. Lord, come, stand with me, preach through me, and grant that, that the hearts of your people are helped and blessed today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I, I do and I don't. Like, uh, like I said, I may make it through this, I may not, and I'm already going to deviate from my notes. I want to start with this. I've got it later on. But I need to say, and I want to make sure even if I come back to it and say it again today or, or some other time, we need to make sure that we're aware that qualification is where God puts the emphasis on the men of God and not on giftedness. And I, that could be a self-serving statement since I'm not eminently gifted, but it's not meant to be. Here's what I mean by that. We just recently talked about, you know, Ravi Zacharias, and there's been others. There was a Josh Harris, I believe it was, years ago, great writer and public speaker, and then he abandoned the faith and said he no longer believes in Christianity. And We'd like to stick people up in front of people uh, that are, you know, Athletes, they've become a believer or they have a professed faith and we stick them up in front of the cameras and we have them telling everybody about God and then, you know, they don't stay faithful. We focus so often on the gift and not the qualification. And in the case of people like Robbie or Josh Harris that have great gifts but obviously weren't qualified, they do great damage to God's people. And so I want you to understand that as we open God's Word, and Paul specifically deals with in Timothy, and he does it again in Titus, what does a church need in a pastor? He doesn't point to great giftedness. So we need to get our attention off of that. We need to quit looking for that. We need to quit expecting that from, from the men who would stand in a pulpit and preach. Because as I've mentioned in my prayer, I've wrestled with that, really wanting to perform. That's pathetic if that's my idea of what I'm doing here. I'm not performing. But I feel the weight to, to give you something that's going to make you feel better or lift you up or encourage you or, you know, something that you're going to want to sit and listen to. But I'm coming to understand that I'm not preaching for your satisfaction. I'm not preaching for your entertainment, certainly. I'm preaching for your edification. I'm serving for your soul. And I do want to come through the mind to get there, and I do want to be engaging so that you stay plugged in, because if you've checked out, you're not going to hear what the Spirit has to say. But primarily what I'm here to do is to feed the lambs. That's what Jesus, when Peter had sinned, and Jesus restored him, he didn't say, Peter, go wow my people, go entertain the crowds. He said, feed my sheep. So that's, that's my only aspiration, is that I would give you something that you can live on today. But I want you to recognize as we see, as we go through this list, it's not about giftedness. It's about qualification. And we do the same thing. Let me, let me just throw this in there before I actually get to my notes here. We do the same thing when it comes to this, this debate or this, this battle between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Like I've, I grew up in those churches and it was all about the gifts of the Spirit and can I say some prophecy from the Lord or can I utter some ecstatic utterance in some language that nobody's ever heard or can I fall on the ground and call that slain in the Spirit? Where is that in the Bible? Like again, we focused on a gift 
rather than what the Spirit actually puts the focus on, which is the fruit. So we're in, we err. We want what's flashy, what's really attention-grabbing, and, and it's really not. What God got for us is the mundane and the everyday. A faithful man who faithfully opens the Word of God and gives a faithful message. And so that's what we need to be looking for. That's what we need to learn to hunger for. As we're learning to become thankful and express thankfulness, we also need to train ourselves to not be looking to be wild or entertained, but to be taught and fed. So with all that, let's dive into the text here. I've got this broken down into four headings, and we started on it last time. Uh, and it was basically uh, Christ-like character, which honestly is true of every qualification that we're going to look at. But there's 12 here at the beginning that, that I'm kind of keeping in that category just for a handle. So we're going to continue through that. We've got 12 more. Uh, we've got most of those 12 to cover today. Uh, so Christ-like character would be my first main point, and that'll cover verses 1 through 3. Then when we drop down, and that'll be the biggest one, by the way, then when we drop down into the second point, if you're a note taker, it's going to be conscientious at home. And we'll, we'll look at verses 4 and 5 there. Then we'll, we'll dip into verse 6, and our third point will be conditioned by experience. And then if we get there, fourth point, complemented by outsiders. And we'll look at verse 7. But again, I'm, if, I, if I'm going long, I'm just going to cut it down. We'll stop, and we'll pick it back up the next time. So let's, let's look at Christ-like character, our first point, and I'll read verses 1 through 3 again, uh, and, and we'll just dive into that. Paul again said to Timothy, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And I think that, let me pause there, I think that is a qualification, but I think that's also indicative of every other thing that he has to say. Like every other category, that's sort of like the main the, the, the overarching theme, above reproach. Now let me flesh that out. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this in your marriage. It looks like this in your home. It looks like this in your character. So we could say shorthand, above reproach, but then Paul kind of fills that in for us. What does that, okay, so what do you have in mind, Paul? And so he begins to flesh that out. So that's the overarching theme. And then kind of subset to that, above reproach means this, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And that's our first three verses there. So what does it mean then to be sober-minded? Well, sober-mindedness denotes self-control, balanced judgment, and freedom from debilitating excesses of rash behavior. Okay, let me say that again. It's, it denotes balanced judgment and freedom from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. We can also say that being sober-minded means that a man is calm in judgment. You know, he's not, he's not all worked up. He's, he's not erratic in his thinking. He's not impulsive. He, he's, he's not, uh, you know, way up here when it calls for being way down here, and he's not way down here when it calls for a, a little more energy. Like, he, his mind, it, it fits the occasion. He's thinking as he ought to be thinking. He's not making light of things when he, when he doesn't need to. And that certainly, I hope, doesn't mean that a, that a pastor can't have corny jokes because otherwise I'm disqualified. Uh, I just live on them. I'm known as, at work even as the guy with the bad dad jokes. And so uh, I hope that doesn't disqualify me. But going on here, every pastor will face difficult situations in the life of the church that are going to require wisdom. It's just going to happen. 
we're, a, we're a, a body of people that bring our problems with us every Sunday to worship. And so that's going to create friction. It's going to create a rub. There's going to be issues either here or in your personal life that are going to require help. And so the man of God that's going to come to your house and, and be the soul doctor, if you will, is going to have to be sober-minded. You wouldn't want a drunk surgeon operating on your heart, and you don't want a, a, a pastor who's not sober-minded to be operating on your soul. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But we're going to face those difficult situations, and so it requires wisdom, diplomacy, discretion, thoughtfulness, and the list could go on and on. So for this reason, a pastor needs to be sober-minded, clear-headed, and he needs to exemplify those, those characteristics in his ministry and leadership. But Paul goes on from sober-mindedness, and he says, okay, Above reproach, that means this, and let's add to that. He also, along with sober-mindedness, needs to be self-controlled. This trait involves being sensible. He's able to make decisions, and that's definitely necessary in the life of a pastor in the ministry of a church. It's related to sober-mindedness, being self-controlled is, but it's distinct because self-control denotes prudence on the part of the pastor. And one commentator put it this way, Prudence differs from wisdom in this, that prudence implies more caution and reserve than wisdom, or is exercised more in foreseeing and avoiding evil than in devising and executing that which is good. End quote. So being self-controlled also carries a dimension of being free from controlling appetites. I'm going to try to make this bigger. So Francois Rebellius said this, How shall... How shall I be able to rule over others if I have not full power and command of myself? That's kind of the idea behind self-controlled. How am I going to exercise leadership for other people? How am I going to help you through your life, navigating the problems and the, and the difficulties and the, all the conundrums and quandaries of life if I can't even manage myself? If I'm a train wreck or a hot mess, as we like to say, and I know we all have those moments, but my life can't be marked by just one train wreck after another after another, and you still think, well, he's qualified to give me advice. You know, that just, it doesn't work. It's antithetical. So how shall I be able to rule over others if I don't have full power and command of myself? And that's why we read in the Proverbs, that book of wisdom from the Old Testament, something like this. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Let's stop for a second, because what's the connection there? Well, think about back in this day, we, used, we just used this one recently, so let me, let me illustrate it this way. How many of y'all want to live in a house without walls? I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It's raining outside. That's all going to blow in on you. But let's just suppose that we lived back in the day when these people lived, and there was still quite a bit of, I mean, we don't have deer just eating your, your grapes in the yard or, you know, for, you know, foraging around in your garden, or just rabbits, it would be bears, or or lions, or things like that, and you're in this house with no walls. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It's, there's no protection there. There's no safety or security. Well, the walls to the city were in similar, except the threats weren't just wild animals. It was invading armies. That was what kept your enemies from coming in and destroying your way of life. And so uh, Solomon's saying that a man without self-control is like a city that's been broken into, it's been breached, and now they've torn down all the walls so anybody can run in at any moment and just ransack everything, take what they want, and you're left destitute. So self-control is an important thing, 
It's super important for a pastor, but honestly, looking at that definition there in Proverbs or that that illustration, we should all have self-control. And that's so lacking in our culture today. We we don't like self-control. We want what we want when we want it and as much as we want of it any time. We talk about binge-watching and binge-eating and all that stuff, things that we didn't really do when we were younger. And and honestly, that that signals a growing lack of self-control in our lives. But notice the warning from Scripture that a man that doesn't have self-control or a woman that doesn't have self-control or a child that doesn't have self-control is about as effective as a city without walls. We must have self-control. And so a pastor, as the example to the flock, must have self-control. Lack of self-control does not evince the shepherd-like protection a pastor must exercise. If as a pastor I'm supposed to be leading in some way and and think about the Old Testament kind of picture of a pastor, the guy that that has the rod and the staff, one so he can reach down and lift sheep up that have fallen down into a crack, and the other so he can beat lions and bears in the head and kill them, that's a pretty bold guy, a pretty pretty, uh, gruff character. You would feel pretty safe around this individual. But if I don't have self-control, I don't exude the kind of confidence that you need to have in me. If I can't control myself, then how do you know I'm going to keep you safe? I'm a bludgeon to my own self. My life's a wreck. How am I not going to trample all over you and bring ruin to your life? How am I not going to hurt you and bruise you or mistreat you? And so a pastor must have self-control. And one reason he must be self-controlled is so that it's our next qualification, so that he'll be able to teach. And if you look at it and and, and work through this list, you'll see that ability to teach is the only, what we would say, ability in this entire list. So when we think about giftedness versus qualification, if if this were a, a gift at all, this would be the only place that gifting shows up, but I think it's not unrelated to qualification. It does say ability or able to teach, and that obviously on the face of it is an ability, but it's not like disconnected from character. Because it, again, it flows out of this idea of self, sober-mindedness, self-controlled, being respectable, and so this ability to teach. This trait has to do with ability, but it's not unrelated to character, because in fact, a pastor's character directly impacts their ability to effectively teach and preach. It involves much more than skilled oratory or merely transferring knowledge because pastoring requires leading by example, teaching by example. So there's three basic elements to this being able to teach that we want to look at. But just before I go there, let me just come back and say that again. I don't really, I might be gifted in the sense that, that, you know, other men have been gifted, able to put words together in, in in a way that makes sense and sort of, you know, semi-fluid in, in speaking publicly and, and not so nervous that I, you know, I, I can't, I'm just always hem-hawing around and looking at my feet and it may be easy to listen to, but if my character is missing, then I'm not really teaching anything. I'm saying a lot of words, but I'm not really teaching much. And so my character is linked to my ability to teach and especially in the local church. It's just like the dad in the home that's always doing the, all the wrong stuff and he looks at his kids and he says, do as I say, not as I do. 
well, I'm sorry, but your lifestyle is saying a lot more and training a lot more effectively than that statement, do what I tell you to do, don't do what I'm actually living in front of you. And so for that reason, pastor's character, which is a qualifying thing, is not unrelated to the, the, the little bit of ability that we have to have. But when we think about that ability, the human aspect of it, you know, the, the, the skill part of being able to teach, what does that in, involve? Well, I think it involves, again, these three things at, at a minimum. A pastor must have a willingness and also prepare to preach and teach. I say willingness because, uh, you know, you look at 1 Peter 5.2 and it basically says that, that pastors are not supposed to serve under compulsion. Like the, the goal here, the idea isn't that we're forced into this, and I don't really want to, but I've, you know, we took a vote and I'm the guy that, that got forced up in front of the church and I've got to do this, which actually has happened in history. We're the only man in town that had an education or the only person around that, that actually had the ability to read. And so you had unconverted men at, at times that were forced up into the pulpit to preach. But there has to be a willingness, we see that in verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office. So there's his willingness. And then we see that echoed again, like I said in 1 Peter 5, 2, that we don't serve under compulsion, but willingly. And so that's, that's a part of it. And if we're willing to do this, then we're going to take that next step and we're going to prepare. We're going to study. We're going to learn so that when we stand to speak, we're actually speaking intelligently from God's word and sharing truth from, from Christ with our people. A second thing that it, I think being able to teach involves or entails is that a pastor must have then an accurate and a faithful grasp in, uh, of what the Word is saying and the ability to not just grasp it for himself but help apply these things to other people. So we think about uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, and I'll just read that real quick. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so you see Paul there, again to Timothy in his second letter, tells him, look, you, you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to put this forward, the word of God to the, to the people of God, but in order to do that effectively, you've got to have an accurate handling, an accurate grasp, and an accurate application of that, rightly handling, rightly dividing, the word of truth. And so this is part of that ability when that we're looking for in men who would preach. So that kind of, if they're off into error or off into false doctrine, it doesn't mean that I'll never stick my foot in my mouth, that I'll never say something that you might have to come up like a Priscilla and Aquila and say, brother, I think there's a more excellent understanding of that text than what you put out this morning. That may happen. But as a matter of course, I need to have a, a pretty good grasp of what God's word has to say. Donnie or Jeffrey or Andrew must have a pretty good grasp, and we've got to be able to accurately and faithfully understand it and then articulate that truth in ways that are going to be fruitful in your life. And then the third thing here that, that I think is implied in this ability to teach is that a pastor must be competent and clear in his communication. We have to be competent and clear in our communication, and I'm, I'm kind of borrowing here from Colossians uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Turn over there real quick and read that one. Paul's writing to the, to the Colossians and he says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So he's got preaching in mind here. On account which I'm in prison. And now notice what he says, though, that I may make it clear 
which is how I ought to speak. So Paul's asking for prayer, and here he is, the, an apostle who wrote a big portion of our New Testament, and he's saying, I've got a prayer request. I need you guys to pray for me so that when I'm given the opportunity to preach, I can be clear. Because that's necessary. If I'm, it, one, one guy said this, a, a, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So if I'm a little bit confused up here about what I'm trying to say, by the time it communicates out of my mouth and lands on you, it's, it's even harder to see through. It's even harder to grasp. And so we have to have the ability to be clear and competent in our communication. And again, that's not flawless. We have to balance that with what I said before. We're not overdoing this, make it so clear that, you know, that, that uh, there's no room for me to, to make a mistake or that I couldn't possibly misunderstand anything. I like what I heard one pastor say years ago. When the preacher stands up to preach, he's got 50% of the burden. And you've got the other 50%. He has to speak clearly and well and faithfully, and you have to listen. And you have to listen well. And you have to put the pieces together. So, you know, we need to keep that in mind. I'll be as clear as I can, but you need to be as, as alert as you can be, and you need to be running these things through, through your biblical grid and making sure that it all makes sense. There's a parallel passage to this idea of being able to teach that comes to us in what Paul wrote to Titus. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he says it this way. He must hold, this is the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so I think when we see that, it makes sense now how I've kind of opened this up and said, you know, the willingness which we see in this particular text but the accuracy, the faithfulness, and the clarity is, is implied there even more clearly. Being able to hold firmly to this trustworthy word, it's what he's been taught, it's faithful, it's true, it's accurate, and then he also has to be able to give that instruction with sound doctrine and also to be able to face those tough situations where somebody just needs to be told, sister, brother, you're wrong. You're just wrong about that particular issue, and here's what God's word has to say. So those are all things that, that have to do with the ability uh, that the pastor has. But we need to remember this. A pastor will face temptation and contradiction from his own sinful heart, not to mention political pressures from, from the uh, skeptics and, and the world around us. So a qualified pastor is one who will hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He does not capitulate to culture. A faithful pastor doesn't develop new doctrines. He doesn't redefine biblical categories. Qualified pastors don't grow bored with the ancient truth of God's word, nor reinterpret scripture to fit modern narratives. So don't expect that of, of your pastors. We're not here to innovate. We're here, as it's clearly stated in, in what Paul said, to hold firm to the trustworthy word that's already been taught, not to make up something that tickles ears in the generation that we stand in. So one commentary put it this way, the elder must understand Christian doctrine and live it, guiding others in their pursuit of God and godliness, end quote. So let me ask the question, how can a pastor be qualified to teach Scripture to others if he doesn't know it himself? Or if he doesn't love God's Word himself? Or if he doesn't study God's Word or doesn't keep God's Word himself? So these are the things that we're looking for. We're not, again, we're not looking for, man, can he hold my attention like John Piper? Does, do I get all nervous and giddy and butterflies or just whatever it is? Does, 
Put all those things aside. Look for the, 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 the marks of grace in his life. Is he preaching the truth of God? Does he love the word of God? Does he know the word of God? Has he studied the word of God? And is he living the word of God, most importantly? But there's more. Not only this, a pastor must not be a drunkard. And we see that in verse 3. Able to teach, not a drunkard. This is the first of five things that a pastor cannot be. The Greek word here reads, not staying near wine. The prohibition does not forbid all drinking, but it's against drunkenness. And this can easily be seen when you survey all kinds of other uh, versions uh, or, or translations of the scripture. So in the ESV it says, not a drunkard. But if you look at uh, the, the King James, it says, not given to wine, or the Christian Standard Bible he must not be an excessive drinker, or the NASB, not addicted to wine, or the NIV, not given to drunkenness. So like the issue of pastors and marriage that we talked about in, in the, the previous sermon, this is another area where we're tempted to establish moral standards for men that the Bible doesn't put out there. And some of you all have been around long enough to know that, that years ago when Andrew and I came, the church stance here, the covenant basically said you're not going to drink any alcohol or sell any alcohol and be a member of this church. And we, we changed that. And it's not because we love sin and we want to promote ungodliness. It's because the Bible doesn't say that. And so who are we to set a standard up here that says we're going to go beyond God's moral standard and require that of membership? So we, we put it where we feel like the scriptures teach. The scriptures don't teach that drinking any alcohol is a sin. It teaches that drunkenness is a sin. Now, I'll give you that it's so much easier to enforce that if you just say total prohibition, don't touch it, don't sell it, don't taste it, and that's just so much easier to manage. But God didn't put me here to come up with my own rules and make it easier for me. He says that it's, it's clear that, that drunkenness is the sin. So we cannot set moral standards that God doesn't set. Now, let me insert this in there. Let me pause. So set that aside, full stop. We can, I believe, set some expectations of pastors that are not moral, like the education level that, that our church needs the pastor to have or the experience level. So I do think that there's room for churches because the Bible doesn't tell you the education level. It doesn't tell you the experience level necessarily. This one at least tells us that he can't be a new convert. Well, how far into Christianity do you stop being a new convert? Well, that's, there's no text for that. So there's room for us to, to kind of fill in some things that we feel like are necessary, but I would argue that that's never in the sense of morality because you can't outdo God in holiness. You can't set a better standard of righteousness than the one that God has set, and there are reasons that he put those parameters there. And so... I would say we can't set a different or a higher standard here. It would be unwise of us to do that. But we can say because of the life of our church, the, the, the setting that we're in, the needs that we have, we need him to have certain strengths and we need to avoid certain weaknesses. We need him to have a certain level of education or certain experience. I get that. I couldn't pastor as the primary pastor at, at Bethlehem Church up there where, where Piper used to preach or pastor. I think they would need more than I have a skill set for. Do I think I could faithfully give God's word? Sure, I could probably teach a good Sunday school class or something like that, but I would never be able to fill the administrative shoes that Piper or, or Mathis fill there. I just don't have that gifting for that congregation and their needs. And so I think it's okay to recognize those things, but those are not moral issues. I'm not qualified or disqualified on my ability to, to help run that big of a church and have 
have that great a supervisory skill over all the working pieces of that kind of a ministry. So let's come back to the text. Having said that, let's let's come back to what's here. Not a drunkard. Let's let's flesh that out a little bit more. While there's a real danger surrounding alcohol, Scripture is clear that drunkenness is the issue, not whether one exercises their liberty to have a drink. You have personal freedom. Now hear this. You individually have personal freedom to be a teetotaler, but you have no biblical grounds to require that of any other member of this church. You can make that choice. I'm going to abstain for the glory of Christ, and that is well and good. But the person sitting next to you has the same freedom to say, and I'm going to exercise my freedom for the glory of Christ. If he says that it's okay, then I want to be able to to exercise that because he's okay with it as long as I don't cross boundaries. And I know that might be weird for some of us this morning, but I would just point you back to the scriptures, and we're going to look at a couple of things here in a second. Consider this evidence. Based on, I'm speaking now of things that I believed growing up and the way that I would have drawn lines in the past, Jesus would have been drawn out of a lot of my lines. And here's why I say that. Jesus attended a wedding that served wine. Okay? We've done that probably. But has have we ever brought any with us? That seems like a line that we don't want to cross. And I'm not trying to make a case go too far, but we recognize that when they did run out of wine, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. That was sort of like a really big mistake in their culture. Like, you just didn't prepare well, and that was a big embarrassment. Not because it was wine, it was just, in this case, that's what it was, and they didn't plan well. And they're out, and whoops, this really looks silly on us. And Mary goes and pleads and says, hey, can you do something about this? And they take several gallons of water, and Jesus turns it into wine. That makes some of us want to squirm. That would make my mamaw want to squirm. You know, we're just not comfortable with that. But biblically speaking, if we draw the line where mamaw used to draw it, then Jesus can't come to church here. Well, that's the wrong line. If Jesus can't come to church because he does things that we don't morally approve of, then our moral standard is wrong. We've tried to outdo God, and we can't do that because he's the son of God with no sin. And so there's one thing that I would say. But notice this, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking of himself, came eating and drinking, the implication wine, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now the charge of drunkenness was illegitimate on Jesus, not because he was a teetotaler, but because he never got drunk. The point is clear. He's drawing a distinction between him and his cousin, and he says, look, John, he chose teetotalism. And you said he was whacked out and you know he was demon-possessed because look at how weird he lives. And I've come and I've had a different line, and I've, I hang out with you guys, and I've been to your weddings and, and to your feasts, and I'll, I'll eat bread at your table, and I'll drink a glass of wine with you, and you're going to level the charge of drunkenness against me? Again, it wasn't because, well, he's never even touched wine. <gasps> don't say that about Jesus. It's because he never exercised, he he never overindulged. And so we need to understand those things as we think about what our qualifications and expectations of members of this church and even pastors of this church will be. We cannot argue that wine in those days had no alcohol either because if that was the case, I've heard that one, but if that was the case, then it's a wasted command, don't get drunk. You can't get drunk on water. 
you can get drunk on wine with alcohol in it, though. So th there was alcohol in it. Uh, this position also makes no sense of the head waiter's comments at Canaan. If alcohol had no wine, then he had no reason to say that most people sa save the good wine till or serve the good wine first and, and sell the cheap stuff later because you've had a little bit and you're not tasting as discerningly as you used to, so they just lessen the, the quality of wine. Well, that only happens when you're having alcohol in your wine. And so that makes no sense either if there's no wine in the alcohol. So thirdly, it's just historically inaccurate to say that, that it wasn't really an issue because there was no alcohol in the wine in those days. But let's consider two further points, and I'll, I'll move on from this to the next one. First of all, if a pastor uses alcohol, he must do so in a way that is above reproach. Scripture strongly warns about alcohol's destructive effects, but it does not forbid its use. And secondly, this warning needs, we need to think more broadly than just alcohol as well. I'm not up here pitching Miller Lite to you today. That's not my, my purpose in, in, this, in this part of the sermon. We also need to think more deeply because if, we're, if we err on the one side, we cut Jesus out. If we err on the other side, we don't think deeply enough because the warning goes beyond alcohol. It's not just narrowly, it's all about beer or wine. It's also about prescription medication. It's also about illegal drugs. It's about anything that controls the mind and puts us in a place where we can't be sober-minded or self-controlled. And that can be a lot of respectable things, too. There have been good people that have had accidents that get on some high, high medication, some strong pain pills, and then they develop a, a need for that, they feel like, and it becomes a controlling issue and I get that we slid over into that, but at some point we need to recognize, okay, we've crossed the line from lawful use to unlawful use. And we need to be able to have those conversations with folks too. Sometimes we're, we're big on over-medicating or self-medicating because we've got problems in life. And that's not, that's, that would be uh, prohibited based on the implications of this verse as well. It's not just about the drunkenness. It's about turning to other things, controlling our mind, and, and losing that ability to be sober-minded before God. So illicit drug use, prescription drug use that goes too far would also disqualify a man from being a pastor. Now let me insert another parenthetical statement in here, and then I, I promise I will move on. Let's just say we've got a scenario. Let's just say I have a car wreck and I'm in serious pain and I get hooked on some kind of a, a prescription drug. I think the church's responsibility would be to try to come to me and, and talk to me about that. Andrew and maybe Donnie and Jeffrey and some other men come and deal with me about that and, and counsel me through that. While I'm in that state, I shouldn't be serving as your pastor. But do I think that after I come out of that and repent, there might be a case to be made for, for reinstituting me in that role? Yeah. So what I guess I'm advocating for here is, one, not that I have that issue, but that there's a grace in this as well. This isn't, I, I don't think all of these things just simply mean, buddy, if you step over the line one time, well, I have no use for you. Out of the kingdom, out of the church, be gone with you. And I think we've tended in that direction in, in some of our churches in the past, and that's why I want to bring it up. I don't feel that vibe here among this, this group of people, but I do want to state that because the day may come when I cross some line that needs to be dealt with, or Andrew, or Donnie, or Jeffrey, or any other member of this church. And our, our goal there is not to just kick somebody to the curb. The goal is what we see in Matthew, that we go to that brother or sister and we say, hey, I see this sin in your life. And the goal then is to win your brother or your sister. Well, at the end of the day, I'm still just a brother in Christ. 
I've got a particular function within the body just like you do. And mine is more prominent, it's more public, it's more out there, and there is a greater responsibility, I believe, for what I'm doing versus what you're doing. But at the end of the day, if I'm in sin, what I need you to do is come to me and deal with that sin and try to restore me. Now, there may, I may, there, there could be a sin that I could totally disqualify myself with. So I'm not speaking uh, uh, you know, across the board that, that everything that I could do, you just have to get over it and let's move on. But I'm saying we need, we need that balance. Some things would instantaneously and forever disqualify me, and other, th other things may disqualify me for the time uh, as I work through those issues and, and come back to faithfulness to the Lord. So let me cover one more here, and then we'll put a pen in it, and we'll come back to it. Let's talk about, I'm going to do a, a two, not violent and not quarrelsome. I know in, in verse 3 there it says, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. But I want to deal with the not violent and the not quarrelsome together because they're, they're basically uh, cousins, if you will. They're, they're very close. So what do we mean there? Let's take these two together. What, do we, what does Paul mean when he says that the man of God must not be a violent man or a quarrelsome man? Well, not violent literally means not a bruiser, not someone who's ready to fight or quarrelsome. And so that's part of the reason I want to put these together. Pastors routinely deal with high pressure, high emotion situations. We address some of the darkest and ugliest and most hurtful sins in, in, in society. That's just what pastors wind up doing over time. Shameful sins, things that we're embarrassed to talk about, things that we don't even want to, to tell our wife or our, our husband or our kids about, things that we, we want to keep private, but the pastor's job sometimes is to wade into the middle of that, to step into that ugly space. And obviously that's going to create conflict and arouse anger, all kinds of emotions. So if I step into a space as a pastor trying to give counsel and you're already fomented, like you're already worked up just because of the nature of what sin's doing to you, I can't come in hot. It, it, it would be destructive. It would be foolish. It would be deadly, perhaps, in every sense of the word. If the man of God is prone to contention or quarreling, then these delicate situations are going to escalate. It's not if they escalate. They will escalate. And when they escalate, the outcome that's likely is that we're going to destroy Christ's sheep. We're definitely going to bring reproach on the name of Christ. We're going to sully the reputation of our church and the community. We're going to cut ourselves off from future opportunities to minister either in that family or within this congregation or to the culture around us. So the man of God must remain calm. He must be able to diffuse situations with gospel grace, discretion, and tenderness. When we look at the idea of quarrelsomeness, again, it's very akin to the violence idea, but it's not necessarily let's let's punch this out. It's more of the let's just contend over everything. It's more of the intellectual side of it, if you will. But being quarrelsome is forbidden here and also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where Paul writes again, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So pause. See the connection there? There's a sense in which quarrelsomeness is just unkind. That's the contrast or the comparison that he makes. Don't be quarrelsome, but kind. So we need to just recognize if we tend toward quarrelsomeness, you're just not a kind person. And that's not okay. It's forbidden in our text today. It's forbidden in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And that one speaks, I think, more generally to folks, although this one's dealing particularly with pastors. But quarrelsomeness is unkindness. 
I've been that guy. I've lived that, that, that reality. Probably tend toward that sometimes even still. But let's come back to the text. Not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. End quote. So quarreling is unkind. It conceals Christ's glory also. You don't see the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, the kindness, the mercy, the grace of Christ when all you want to do is argue and bicker and fuss and fight and contend. You've just completely thrown a, a, a blanket over the, the most beautiful aspects of who Christ is in that moment and to that person. You're concealing more than you're revealing. And I know that, that with me, when I'm contending, boy, it's because there's a truth at stake and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it known. But what I've got to balance that with is, is not living or, or dealing in that moment in a way that obscures much more than I'm ever revealing. There's a danger there. We conceal Christ's glory. We create obstacles to ministry and especially one's ability to teach. Who wants to learn from a person who's just obnoxious? If you're constantly being slapped around verbally by somebody, feeling like it's always some verbal pugilism, then you're always getting punched in the nose with words, then who wants to sit down and listen to that? Or who's willing to take their advice? I mean, I'm not. I will bristle in a heartbeat over that stuff. And then I'll have to deal with some of my sinful tendencies. So we don't want to be those kinds of people. We can't correct if we're quarrelsome, if we're, if we're violent and contentious. And there's no room to admonish the sin that's running rampant within the church if this is our attitude, if this is our, our character. So Philip Graham Ryken says this about, I think, the two really, uh, not violent, not quarrelsome. Bullies are not eligible for ordination. An elder is not a browbeater. Men who are verbally or physically abusive cannot be trusted to tend God's sheep, end quote. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I hope that, that by the grace of God, I'm not a bully to, to the people of God or a browbeater in my home uh, to, to my family or to you all. Let me put a pen in there. Let me run down and I'll, I'll, let me run through some of my application that I have and I'll share the rest of it next time. We'll close up for today. I put together seven verbs just to make it simple and clear as we think about this, this, this sermon and what I'll preach the next time. Action words, right? We know what a verb is. It's a do-something word. It's because I want you to get the point. This is not about me telling you intellectual properties. It's, it's me giving you, this is what I think God would require of us in light of, of this sermon and, and the next one. We need to convert these qualifications into questions that are designed to reveal my character, Andrew's character, Donnie's character, and Jeffrey's character. There's not a question in this text. But our goal as a, as a body, our goal as a church is to, to find out if Donnie and Jeffrey actually possess these qualities. And, and again, we have them preaching on Sunday nights, but mostly we're seeing ability to teach there. We get a glimpse into some of these others, but we're going to have to do more than just listen to them preaching to us to understand if they meet these other qualifications. And so what I would challenge you to do, because... I've thought about doing it myself and maybe publishing it, but I'm probably just not going to. What I would, would encourage you to do is read through this text often. Think about, if I were going to ask a few questions of Donnie or Jeffrey to kind of get to the heart of some of these issues, to see if I can discern where their character is at on the spectrum, what kind of questions would you come up with? 
and then find some time, sit down with them and talk. I think that's a, a, a good response to what this, this text would point us to. So convert, there's your verb. Convert these qualifications into questions. And then ask. That's your, your next verb there, ask. Ask them about not just the qualifications as we see here, but ask them about their involvement in past churches. This isn't the only place they've had membership. Ask their fa about their family life. Ask about their personal pursuit of God. You know, when I, I give new hire training, and you know, you being in health and safety, you deal with people's, at some point, health issues, though that's not directly with me, especially in this role. We've got a nurse on staff and all that, and that helps. But you think about HIPAA, and you think about conversations that you wouldn't normally have, right? I don't normally don't shake hands, and what health conditions do you have? We ask things like, what do you do for a living, or, or you know, where are you from? We don't ask, do you have heart disease? And that would be totally off the table, right? That's just, we don't go there. But what I tell folks, we get to this point, like, and we're dealing with, if, if we're out on the floor and, and some accident happens, who's been CPR trained? And most of the time, nobody has. And so the slide at that bullet point says, give care, you know, basically don't give care beyond what you've been trained to do. And so I usually survey the room. Who's got CPR training? And most of the time, it's nobody then you feel like there's nothing for you to do, right? You don't have any special skills. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Or how about this? And I give the scenario. Let's say we're walking around, I'm giving you a tour of the plant, and all of a sudden my face starts to droop, and I start to, I'm slurring my speech, and you don't know what that means. It's a, a symptom of perhaps I'm having a stroke. Although we wouldn't normally ask health questions, you have every right in that moment to say, hey, man, is, do you have a health condition that I need to know about? Are you on any medication? Things we wouldn't normally ask because the situation calls for it. Because here's what could happen. I could lose complete consciousness. And then when the EMTs at work show up, who's going to tell them my story? Who's going to tell them that, yeah, he told me that he's on this medication or that he has a family history of stroke? When they know that, they can respond a lot faster. You don't have any special skill. You're just being a concerned human being. Or if I cut my arm off, and I'm laying there, and, it's, and I know that sounds gruesome, but this is what I tell them. And I'm laying there. I want to know that the world isn't coming to an end. I'm wallowing around in all kinds of fear and anxiety, and you can't put my arm back on and make it better, but you can suffer with me. You can get on the floor next to me and assure me that life will go on, that you're not going to leave me alone to lay there in it by myself. You can keep people away. You can give me dignity in my moment there by protecting me from onlookers and from anything else that goes on. That doesn't require special skill requires being a loving human being. And that's what I tell people when I hire them in. Well, why did, why did I tell you all that? Because we, we're not typically going to walk up to folks and say, tell me about your home life. But when we're thinking about asking two men to, to come on board here as pastors, that's on the table now. It's on the table because Paul says it's on the table. It's one of the qualifications. And so we're not normally going to do that. But this is that stroke or that, that severed limb situation, in, in a sense, where the situation requires it. And so let's not be shy about these things. Let's not put decorum, and I don't mean this in a, in a literal sense, but we think that we're, we've got this decorum and we wouldn't dare ask those kinds of questions. But we have to with this. It's that important because we're asking men to step up and lead this church, and we need to know if they've got character. And you don't catch character necessarily totally from the preaching event. You have to get down into life with them and ask those questions. Talk to their family with or without them around. And I don't mean to be sneaky about that. I mean, I, w I wouldn't like sneak around and do that. I'm just simply saying, 
it's, a, it's appropriate to, to ask Janice or Bethany about how, what they think about the ministry or how they feel about the leadership in the home. Those kinds of questions are on the table, but we don't typically want to ask those kinds of things. And the third one, I'll stop with this one. Third verb here, speak, if possible. And I say that because we won't all have opportunity for this, but to coworkers, bosses, uh, maybe college professors. Andrew's got connections with Southern. He could easily find out as a student, how does Jeffrey do? Does he never turn in assignments? Is he always, you know, giving grief to the professors? I mean, those are things that, that we could. Not everybody can do that, but Andrew could. He could find those things out. I could call over to, to talk to some coworkers, perhaps, with Donnie and, and find out what they think about him. And why do I say that that's important? I'll get back to it when, we pre when I preach again but he must be well thought of by outsiders. Well, how are you going to determine that if you don't talk to an outsider? An outsider would be the boss or the college professor or the, you know, the neighbor. And again, we can't, all of us can't do all of those things, but some of us can do a little bit of those things until the church gets a good picture of whether or not we're, we're going to lay our hands on two men that are qualified for the task. And so, we want to convert these questions into qualifications, ask about their involvement in past churches, family life, and personal pursuit of God, and speak, if possible, to co-workers, bosses, etc., and listen discerningly to the answers. And we'll stop there and pick this back up next time. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. Honestly, God, even uh, thanking you, I want to thank you for the need to preach this sermon. God, that we have two men that, that desire pastoral ministry and that we're at a place as a church where we need to be pressed to think through these issues and we need to step out and, and begin to uh, examine them for qualification. So God, help us to hear, to hear with obedience and to put these things to work. And God, we just ask that you would reveal the truth, that you would help us not to make a, a hasty decision as the word says, not to lay hands on any man suddenly. We don't want to do that and share in, in sin that may be there. So God, help us as we seek to follow you in this and apply your word. We've come as a church to this point in, in our life and ministry. So thank you for this, God, and, and help us to be faithful. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.